Okay, so we're going to talk about Jephthah today. Uh, we'll see how far we get. We might get through the whole deal, um, or we might not, but we'll at least uh, find out about who this guy is. So chapter 10 is where we are, and I'm not really going to hit every verse. We're going to kind of move through and skip some. Uh, the first part of Judges 10 in particular is, so after Abimelech, and it tells about these two um, leaders, Tola and Jair, and Maybe that wasn't a very complimentary thing. I put placeholders. Just it doesn't say an awful lot about them. It says they they ruled. Um, it says that uh, Jair had thirty sons with thirty donkeys and thirty cities. So that's what we're told about um, him. And Tola ruled for twenty three years. Jair for twenty two. So they they were substantial. Uh, Jephthah, we're going to see, only ruled for six, but there's a lot more said about him nevertheless. So unfortunately, though, then you go into that same cycle. Um, verse 6, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, etc. Uh, verse 7, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year, and then for 18 years they oppressed them. So eventually they again um, cry out to the Lord. Uh, verse 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. So then the Lord recounts how he's already saved them from the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, uh, the Sidonians, etc., all these different times that he saved them. And then uh, verse 13 says, Yet, so in spite of all this, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. So God is kind of bringing it right to their face. You've chosen these other gods, so that's who you need to talk to. That's who you need to rely on now. I am done saving you. Uh, so at least initially, uh, he refuses to deliver them. And on your sheet there, so they grasp. Uh, the consequences of their sins, reaping what they have sown. So sometimes, and perhaps you've had that happen in your life, where God doesn't immediately pull us out. Uh, in fact, it seems like uh, often he lets us feel the weight of our circumstances, sometimes because of our sins, sometimes just because uh, he's working in our our lives, our character, our relationship with him. But in this case, it does seem he wants them to realize this cycle has gone on and on and they need to feel the consequences of their sins. And, and the second note on there is to push them to deeper earnestness, desperation, repentance. Again, I, I would say probably if most of you look at your lives, you've had times where God has not quickly pulled you out of a hard situation for that reason, too, that we get a little more desperate. Um, there was a, a situation where someone had asked us to fast and pray on a regular basis for it, and to my um, shame, I would say, at that point, we prayed, but we weren't earnest to that level. When things get worse, you get a, you know, if we were perfectly godly, it wouldn't take that, but we're not. And so when we get pressed is often when we get really serious about prayer, sometimes fasting with it, but we get more serious about the steps that we take. And sometimes I think God lets us get to that point 
so that we deepen, so that we realize the kind of spiritual warfare we're in and we dive in a bit deeper. Um, so the people, uh, it says, press in in repentance. And the difference was they also even showed the fruit of repentance. So verse 15, the sons of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And the first part of 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. So again, he, he presses them to the point where they're not just giving lip service. They're not just saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to behave now. They're taking it much more seriously. They're um, putting things in his hands, and they're beginning to actually have some fruit from their repentance. You remember uh, John the Baptist in that kind of um, well-known passage where they come to him uh, to repent, and instead of welcoming them initially, he says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee and therefore show fruits in keeping with your repentance. And real repentance does uh, show fruit. All right, so then um, on your sheets, God can bear their misery no longer. So it says um, in the New American Standard, he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. New King James says his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And I've got on there, we should take comfort in this revelation of the character of God, that sometimes we can think, well, he is, you know, he's immovable, so he just, he's never moved by our struggle. Uh, but verses like that would say otherwise, that he, he couldn't bear or he, he no longer could endure the misery of his people. Uh, there's a New Testament passage that I thought of with that in Philippians 2.27. Uh, Paul is talking about one of his fellow workers who is sick, and it says, for indeed he was sick to the point of death. So Paul wondered if he was going to die. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. And only the Lord knows how much uh, we're to be allowed. Uh, there are certainly people who have lots of sorrow in their life, so it doesn't mean that God is just going to every time remove it when we think. But still, I think to know the heart of God, that he is merciful, that he sees our sorrow. There's that psalm that talks about keeping our tears in a bottle, that he saves them, that he's aware of them. Uh, because I think sometimes if there are some circles of Christianity that probably spend too much time, that, that that's all God ever does is weep uh, for us. But I think probably in the Reformed circles, sometimes we probably might err a little more the other side of not thinking of God as someone who's moved or who cares uh, about our struggles. But this little passage thrown in there certainly would indicate otherwise. All right, so then um, Israel and the, their enemies, the Ammonites, draw up for battle, and Israel seeks a deliverer. So they see this big uh, army coming against them. Uh, it says, the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So the end of... Chapter 10, you've got they need a deliverer again. And so they're looking for who's, they've, they've come to God and now they're saying who is going to be the, the human who's going to, the man who's going to lead us. All right, and then um, going into chapter 11, now Jephthah the Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. So Jephthah is the one that they notice. Um, do you remember who else was called a valiant warrior in uh, Judges? 
Gideon. So what are differences between, um, well, you, you haven't seen a lot about Jephthah unless you read ahead. Uh, I will tell you he is a tough guy. Um, so the, the difference is Gideon, it almost seemed like, okay, God must have been looking ahead to what he was going to be because he was not yet an obvious valiant warrior. He was probably with some good reason hiding as he did some work and, and was staying out of sight. And some of what he did, he did at night rather than the day. I would say he kind of had normal fears and so on, uh, where Jephthah seems to already be rather valiant, maybe not tremendously holy yet, but he was, he was pretty, um, seemed to be a very strong man. So then it says, um, it gives us a little background about um, Jephthah. So we already see that he was the son of a harlot. Um, verse 2, Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Uh, and it's thought probably that that term and the way it's used, that it probably his mother wasn't an Israelite. Uh, for one thing, it was fairly rare for a harlot to be an Israelite. They were usually from other uh, peoples. And then it says, So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob and worthless, and think of, of kind of, Useless, empty, unprincipled would be the idea there. Fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. And um, New King James kind of supplies the thought there. It says, worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. And it seems to be the idea there that he, he wasn't a great, honorable guy in that sense. He was... Um, some of the commentators like to call him a thug, but he was a tough guy, rough guy, who had a lot of what they called worthless people around him, and he would go about probably raiding and taking what he wanted for the most part. So, but when you're in trouble and you're being attacked by an army, you, you take people that you think really could do something about it, and Jephthah was that type of person. Um, so on your sheet there, a valiant man with a shameful background and dishonorable life is what is described. So it is interesting that God would choose him. Certainly not unheard of, though, in Scripture. So his family and former neighbors come to him when they are in trouble. So verses 4 through 6 talks about that, the elders of Gilead. Uh, they went to get him, and they said, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah pushes back. That seems kind of appropriate. Uh, he says, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you are in trouble? Well, they're able to work out a bargain. I mean, they basically say, Well, that's why we came to you, is we are in trouble, and you can do something about it. Uh, but they said they'd make him head. And so he says, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? Then they say, the Lord is witness. Between us, surely we will do as you have said. And Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So this is kind of interesting because you, you at first think, well, you know, Jeff is just this thug. He's just a rough guy. He's got a bad background. He's got a chip on his shoulder. Somewhat understandably, his, his family has pushed him away. He's not going to get, a, uh, at least up to that point, any inheritance or anything, any kind of help. Quite the opposite. And, and so he's got a bunch of worthless guys around him, and he's raiding. So not, not a great guy, and yet it's interesting 
perhaps God already uh, working in him, that at the end of verse 9 where he says, um, if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? So he's already acknowledging. I mean, that would have been an easy place to say, you know, and I defeat them or I crush them or I give us a victory. But he already is beginning to speak of what God's going to do. And then the people say, the Lord is witness between us. We'll do this. And then it says, Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. You know, some of these things we, we can kind of approximate what we what we think that means, you can at least say he said it with a, a consciousness that God was listening, that God was his witness, that he was his uh, judge in hearing these things. Um, some think there is literally the Ark of the Covenant or the tabernacle had been temporarily moved to there. That's not so convincing to me, but uh, either way, he certainly was conscious that he was representing and speaking before uh, the Lord. So, again, um, you know, we all have a mix of um, ungodly character that God is working on in us, and and then a sense, uh, if we're believers, um, that God is involved in our life, that he is using us. And so Jephthah, and, and he is mentioned in uh, you know, the Hall of Faith in Hebrews as someone who did great things by faith. So I do think we, we'd be wrong to just write him off and say, well, because of those initial things we knew about him. And, and I think, again, we want to apply these things. Do we write people off sometimes? You hear a few things about them that are unsavory, that you don't like. Uh, maybe occasionally we write ourselves off because we had a certain background or we had things that have, we've done or have happened in our life where we just feel like, well, you know, obviously God couldn't use us or God couldn't use that person because they're that type of person. And, and I, I think these are just good reminders. As rough as these stories tend to be, uh, they're also helpful in that way because they kind of, show us how God works even in the midst of a very rough time with some uh, rough people. All right. Um, so down in, uh, let's see if I left any out. So number nine, Jephthah gives the Lord the glory. And then 10, God is chosen as a deliverer for Israel. We've kind of said this, this man of shameful background, dishonorable life, and worthless associates. Um, can you think of, I know it's always hard to remember back, but Abimelech. Um, can you think of any similarities or contrasts with Abimelech? Because there's, there's definitely some similarities there, but there's also some differences. Anybody think of any? I'll give you a moment. Yep, Nathan. His mother was a concubine, and he had a band of worthless men to help him fight. Yeah, so that was very similar. Any, this is a hard one. Anybody know the difference between a concubine and a harlot? So concubine is a, um, they're legally actually a wife, uh, but they don't have all, but it's almost like they're a second level. They don't have all the, rights and privileges and so on of a full wife, but they're uh, harlot, very different, you know, prostitute. So anyway, a little bit of a difference there, but uh, worthless men, difficult background. Yeah. That's similar now because they both seem to be seeking power. It's just that he's taking a more acceptable approach. Okay, yeah. What's more acceptable about it? His approach is... Okay, you want me to come back? Sure, I'll come back and fight your war if you'll give me some power. Whereas Abimelech was like, hey, I'm one of you. How about we don't kill one of my brothers and I'll take power? Very good, yeah. Okay, so definitely a difference in how he's doing it. Anything else strike you as a similarity or a difference? Family strife. Okay. So they were like had the, the 70 brothers thing, right? That was him, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. And the other uh, Jephthah. Jephthah. 
So that's, yeah, that's most of them. The one other big one is um, Abimelech doesn't seem to have any fear of the Lord. I mean, to have done what he did with his brothers, uh, whereas Jephthah, you know, speaks about if the Lord does this, if the Lord does that. So he's definitely in Jephthah's thinking and motives uh, as best we can see. And I, I think there is some reality to that. Um in that verse from Hebrews, it says he delivers Israel by faith in God despite his faults. Hebrews 11.32, what more shall I say for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon. And by the way, the, the, again, the lists in this hall of faith, it is interesting. I mean, Gideon was, uh, at least initially, seemed to be a bit of a coward and a doubter. Uh, Barak, he was definitely cowardly. He would not go do what he was commanded to do unless Deborah went with him. Uh, Samson, lustful, self-focused, disobedient to God in relationship to women. Uh, and then Jephthah, son of a harlot, ungodly friends, ungodly lifestyle. Uh, and even David, adulterer, murderer. Um, uh, Samuel, we're talking a little, everything that we know about him is... Um, pretty ideal. So you've got quite a mix of people, but it says of all of them who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lion, lions, and it, it goes on from there. And then if we went further in the next verse 35 is where it switches over to some of the difficult things of being uh, martyred, uh, destitute, wandering about in caves and so on. So, so God works so differently with um, people and uses very frequently an unlikely band of people uh, to accomplish his work. So again, I think we can be encouraged. A shameful background and even a dishonorable life does not prevent God's call on your life. Now, of course, that doesn't mean and so we don't even worry about our sin. We do. We want to put that to death. We want to be uh, honoring to God. We want to um, seek to be holy. But the point being that God, uh, that, that we all do have sin, and many of these people had very prominent sin, and yet God was able to work with them and call them. And we've, we've read this one, but it just... Fits too well to not remind us. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, that no man may boast before God. And so it's just an Old Testament reminder of that. All right, so then you get into um, number 11 on your sheet, Jephthah attempts diplomacy, which, again, is a little surprising. So he, here's this guy with his had all these worthless fellows and went around apparently raiding and so on. Tough guy, valiant warrior. You would think, I've got my army. Here we go. But he at least attempts diplomacy. Uh, Jephthah sends a messenger to the sons of Ammon, says, what is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? So the Ammonite king uh, twists the truth. Uh, he says, because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Arnon, uh, as far as the Jabbok, those are two rivers, um, and the Jordan. Therefore, return them peaceably now. So basically, again, because I'm not Jay and I don't have an actual picture for you to look at, uh, you have to think of the Jordan going north-south, and you've got these two rivers, and so they're over on the east side. They said, this whole area you just took. 
uh, from us. Well, apparently Jephthah was, was no dummy. He knew his Bible and he knew his history. And so he was able to refute that and correct it. And we won't, we won't read all those verses. You've kind of got a summary there on your sheet. Um, so basically, Moab and Ammon were descendants of Lot. Uh, they were excluded from the Lord's congregation for 10 generations because they joined in hiring Balaam. So you remember that whole thing. In fact, Chris mentioned it in the first service that uh, you've got Balaam being called on by Balak, a Moabite king, to curse Israel, and of course he repeatedly blesses them because that's all God allows uh, them to do. But it was certainly an attempt um, to undermine Israel. And so since Moab and Ammon were part of that, they were excluded from the Lord's congregation. So then the Ammonites lose their lands uh, in their contests with the Amorites. So again, he's this is now the, uh, Ammon that Jephthah is dealing with, they had already lost those lands to the Amorites. And then the Israelites conquered the Amorites who had waged an unprincipled war against them. So, you know, some of this, Jephthah says, you know, basically here's what really happened. We came up from Egypt. Um, they asked permission from a couple of different kings to pass through. They weren't allowed to. Uh, then they asked the Amorite king Sihon, uh, but he didn't trust them to pass through. In fact, Sihon took the Amorites and went after Israel. They had a major battle, and Israel defeated them. And so that's when those lands were um, given to Israel. Uh, and they had possessed them for about 300 years by this time. Um, so that's what had really happened. So for this Ammonite king to say, you stole our land, wasn't really accurate at all. And Jephthah was able to kind of school him on what had really happened. And then verse 25, he says, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel or did he ever fight against them? Uh, so again, Balak did try to undermine Israel, but when Balaam wouldn't curse them, he basically left without a battle. He did not uh, wage war. And so he's saying, are you any better than them? And then verse 26 is where he mentions the 300 years. So he has a bunch of arguments, but in the end, um, he says, I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord the judge judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. Uh, and it says the king of the sons of Ammon disregarded the message which Jephthah sent him. And I wanted to take just a minute. You, you probably have all heard of this idea of a just war that there's such uh, a thing as a just war. Uh, it may still be brutal, it may be horrible, but um, there is this idea of a just war. And it's a lot of the principles are actually, you'll see them here. Uh, it got kind of written about and coded around the time of Augustine in the fourth and fifth centuries. Uh, but then in the 16th and 17th centuries got a lot more uh, specifics. So on your sheet there, it's uh, to be considered a just war, it had to have a just cause. So it wasn't just mere aggression or we're going to take this from you. Um, there had to be a just cause. It had to be a last resort. So again, diplomacy, other measures to try to bring uh, the same results about. Uh, it was declared by a proper authority. It was possessing the right intention, had a reasonable chance of success, and the end was proportional to the means used. So there wasn't uh, excessive force. So we won't spend a lot of time on that, but 
in a way, that's, that's a lot of what uh, Jephthah is saying is, you're coming against us. You're doing us wrong. We haven't sinned against you. We didn't steal your land. Um, and he says at one point, um, you know, uh, verse 24, do you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess. So ultimately, he gives all the human things that went on to bring this about. But ultimately, God has given us this land through all those happenings. Uh, you can keep what Chemosh gives you. So he's, he's arguing that it's, uh, if, if they have to fight back, it'll be a just war. All right, so then 15, the spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah and moves him to action. Uh, it says, verse 29, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. And then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. So he goes on the move after the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him. Unfortunately, it seems like most of this is going really well, that Jephthah's leading well, he's uh, acknowledging the Lord, he's filled by the Spirit. Um, and who knows, I mean, you, you try to picture what's in somebody's head, and we can't do that perfectly, but you know, marching toward battle and whether he began to wonder, is this really going to work? I mean, I haven't done this before. Is God really going to bring this about? Am I sure he's fully with me? It says, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if, if you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So, I already said I think it's a foolish vow. Why, why do you think that was foolish? What specifically was foolish about that? What's that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah, it certainly evidenced his doubts. I mean, God seems to be fully in this, and so to go forth in faith would have been um, the right thing. And it again, Hebrews eleven says he had a level of faith. So it wasn't that he had none, but it was apparently faltering a bit. Yeah, you're involving somebody else's life in the vow. Uh, and um, it's a, a bit more like the Canaanite idea that you have to give something. You have to give some sort of sacrifice to get the, the deity's favor instead of, no, this is just because God is using you. He's called you. You don't have to earn something from him. And before we, and we'll come back to this when it, when it comes about, um, and on your sheet, the blanks, I've just got unnecessary and then given it the cost of others' life. But it's always good to think, do I ever do that? I mean, not to this level, probably, but, you know, is there this temptation to think, I want to put God... Uh, I want to make him a debtor to me. I want to, I want to do this thing, and then he kind of owes me. Uh, or, uh, and we've talked about this in, in other settings, but that idea, well, you know, I've just, I've just served the Lord so well this month that I, I just thought surely he would do this for me, you know, this thing I prayed for. And some of them are good prayers. I've, I've shared the one uh, in the past that always stood out to me of this woman who was a uh, choir leader and said to me once with sadly quite a lot of bitterness you know I've served the Lord all these years and all I want is a, a godly husband and he won't even give me that I mean it's it's it becomes this view that God owes us and and we really have have done more for him than he's doing for us so 
it's always good to kind of think through when we read these things and go, oh, he is crazy. What was he thinking? Do we have versions of that? And just being careful that God is gracious. We don't need to purchase or buy him off. Uh, and at the same time, we can't buy him off because we don't have something that he needs. Uh, we don't have something that, you know, otherwise... I mean, like when he says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills, what are you going to bring me? It's true of anything that we want to bring to him. Uh, thankfully, he is a gracious God. Yeah. I think on the other side of that, from my experience at least, we, we offer these things as a token of our sincerity to God. I think it's more, more to me at least, to me, or if you'll get me out of this situation, I'll read my Bible every day going yep. forward. Yep. Or if you'll save my children, I'll make sure I fill in the blank. It's, it's as if we have to give God a token of our sincerity, maybe because we failed so many times in the past. Yep. But to me, Hebrews 11 is really, in a way, a little bit of a comfort because we see guys like this that are definitely like us, that they slip and fall, although they're still shown that, like you said, at least have a measure of faith. It's mm -hmm. real yep. that, that we mess up like they mess up, just to a different level. We don't yep. promise you to sacrifice something as a burnt offering, but we offer to sacrifice something. Right. Time to read the Bible or we'll witness to people whatever we do. Yep. So we do that, I think, similarly as a token offered to God. Yep. Yeah, now that's a good that's a good way to put it. I do think it's, but we got to watch that because <laughs> it does still start to sound like I'm going to pay you back when you do this. Yeah. All right. Now, yeah, certainly out of thankfulness, that would be, not all bad. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about lawful oaths and vows. So I'm going to read you a, a sentence or two by Samuel Waldron who talked about the difference between oaths and vows. I'd be very impressed if anybody, does anybody have any idea the difference between an oath and a vow? So I'm going to read you this. I didn't know until I read it. And I would still say, as you look in Scripture, I'm going to tell you this, but I wouldn't hold it hard and fast because, honestly, Scripture doesn't seem to make quite... It's generally there, but I wouldn't say it's absolute, the differences. So an oath is a solemn promise made before the Lord, but made person to person. So like a... a you know, because we call them wedding vows, but this definition would call that a wedding oath because it's between two people before God. So, but at least know there are two main ways that we do these, these when we swear, you know, that we're going to do something. So one would be person to person before the Lord, typically called an oath. Uh, vows are solemn promises made to God. So the purpose of an oath is to confirm the truth of what we're saying before God, and the purpose of the vow is to show our commitment to God. So generally, oath, person to person before God, uh, vow, vowing something to God. I just don't think those words are always used that technically. But at least know there's two different things person to person and to God. Um, so this would be uh, where he was saying it to God, if you really do this, here's what I'm going to do. So he was trying to back up that vow with uh, offering something. So... Um, a lawful oath is where a person swearing solemnly calls God to witness and judge. So judge whether he is uh, right or not in it and to be a witness that, of what he's promised. I'm going to look at just a couple. You could This could be a whole study, but just give us a little sense of it. So 2 Chronicles 6 says, If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house. So that would be doing something, making a promise to somebody in the presence of God. Then hear from heaven 
and act and judge your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. So he's saying if they're making this agreement, judge and bring about what is, what is right. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. All right, and then the second sentence, vows are made to God and should be faithfully fulfilled. There's a lot of warnings that you're probably familiar with. Ecclesiastes 5.4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. So there are those kind of just strong admonitions. You can do this, but if you do it, uh, fulfill it. Uh, Psalm 76, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. So there are places we're going to see a New Testament one that if you took that verse only, you might think, oh, we should never. And there are, there are some little slivers of Christianity that don't believe that we should ever take a vow uh, or an oath. So they won't, they won't do that for marriage. They won't do that when they're called to testify. They won't do that when they... Uh, involves the armed forces. Any of the places where they're called, they they would have a um, try to have a religious exemption. But again, I think that's not taking the whole of Scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy 23: When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. So it's kind of saying you don't have to vow in, in these places, but if you do, you need to fulfill it. And then the New Testament verse, Matthew 5. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. So, what would, be a, what would be a possible reason? I mean, you've got some verses, and they were Old Testament, but that said, you know, vow, vows, that's okay, but fulfill them if you vow. And then this Matthew 5 where Jesus is saying, um, you know, don't, don't do these types of vows where you vow by this or that, or you make an oath um, by the hair on your head or whatever. How do you reconcile those? What would be a, a way to explain why in one place it seems like it's said to, you can vow vows, and then this other one that, that's kind of saying just, just yes or no? Any ideas? Go for it, Manny. Some vows you can't keep. Okay, so you're saying what? Don't, don't make those vows that you can't keep? Okay. All right. Another explanation would be different circumstances being addressed. Mm -hmm. The first one, encouraging round vows, is quite likely targeted at people and targeted at people or a social tendency at the time mm -hmm. to slide away from religion and just set that aside, ignore it, move okay. away from it. Okay. Whereas the second one sounds like more directed at taking vows left and right for every little thing to emphasize your truthfulness and potentially with that building in loophole and building in loopholes where yes I vowed on that, but that thing in particular, I might as well just not have hair, so it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that did seem to be the circumstances Jesus was speaking into, where they were being used really as ways to instead of reinforce the truth, it was to evade the truth. It's kind of like, you know, something silly where, you know, somebody says, well, yeah, I promise, but I have my fingers crossed behind my back or, you know, just things like that that were these loopholes where you could get out of it. That seemed to be, or, or this, 
you know, kind of flippant, constantly adding a vow or an oath to what you said, um, so that if you just said yes or no, uh, that didn't mean a whole bunch because you had to put this uh, vow or oath behind it. He's basically saying truth should be truth. Your yes should be yes. Your no should be no. There might be special circumstances where you legitimately use an oath or a vow. But, yeah, certainly wedding vows is a, a good one, but uh, just the seriousness that, that he makes of these uh, when you make them, to do them thoughtfully. And unfortunately, Jephthah, hard to know what, what his, his mindset was at that moment. Um, all right, so he strikes the Ammonites, it says, with a great slaughter, verses 32 and 33. Uh, they were, the Ammonites were subdued before the sons of Israel. But then verse 34, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and dancing. She was his one and only child. Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. So he does, at least he has that seriousness about, I vowed I have to do it. And he obviously is doing it, it as, at a great cost. Um, yeah, surprisingly, she says to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies the sons of Ammon. Uh, she said to her father, let this thing be done. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, go, and he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So, um, probably m many of you have read uh, about this. Uh, you've probably got study Bibles that say, here's, here's the deal. So what would be the main two... Well, and even before that, and I don't have an answer. I, don't, I haven't seen anybody that has an answer for it. Again, what, what he was thinking was going to come out of his house. I mean, you would think, I've heard, well, you know, sometimes they kept goats in the house, or they kept farm animals, a lot of farm animals, I guess. Uh, or uh, perhaps a servant. Well, that's still pretty terrible. Um, it just seems like a crazy vow to have made, and I don't know that we're going to be able to figure out what he was thinking, but those are some of the possibilities people have come up with. So as far as what he actually did to his daughter in, to keep this vow, I mean, what, what would be the, I can only see two main possibilities, so what would they be? So kill her as one, just flat out your this human sacrifice. Uh, right. And uh, give her up to the Lord's service, uh, perpetual celibacy, virginity. Um, and so there'd be no family line. There'd be um, obviously no uh, marriage. So, and I, I do think these, these are good things to wrestle with a little. I, I don't think we want to, I, I think we're still going to come back to Main things are the plain things, plain things are the main things, and there are still lessons either way. I mean, it seems to have been a very rash, foolish vow either way. Um, if you were trying to argue that he literally killed his daughter, what, what would be in the text that would make that sound like, yeah, that's how it had to be? Randy? Because it came back, commemorated her. Okay, so that would be one. 
Um, what else? It specifies burnt offering. Right. So when he says, he says, I will give it as a burnt offering. Um, okay. Anything else? Right. So he says a burnt offering, and he did what he said he would do. Um, there's a Psalm 15:4 says uh, it, it's saying these good things that that please the Lord, and one of them is those who swear, he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now I would say, yeah, it's it's certainly hurting him, but you're still involving somebody else. All right, so if you were going to say, yeah, I don't. I don't really think that's what happened. I think it's the perpetual service to the Lord and virginity and celibacy. What would be things that would make that argument? Stressing that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mean when it says they went off and yeah, I mean it's certainly it. Yeah, it's interesting that if if it's killing her, that it makes such a deal out of that's what they. Uh, are going off in mourning is her virginity. Sorry. You can offer, you can also do it by giving her a funeral prior at the end. I mean, it doesn't specify a time frame for a bird offering, so I can totally see an in between argument of she lives out her life in service to the Lord, and when she dies, she gets bird offering. Okay, I hadn't thought of that. That's, that's a thought. All right. Human sacrifice is specifically forbidden for Okay, so that'd be another argument against that. Uh, of course, this is judges where crazy things happen that are very sinful. Um, that'd be the counter argument, but yeah. Okay. Got it. I was reading some stuff that when she went to go lament, it was like a tearful mourning, but the lament uh, that the rest of the people did in commemoration of her is potentially celebration, so they probably wouldn't mm-hmm. celebrate. Okay. All right. Yep. If you were a vow and she had no relations with men, so it's kind of like if they're making that point that she remained a virgin, she, you, if she was burned up, obviously that's not necessary to be concerned about that. Okay. Yeah. It applies from that to me that she remained alive. Yeah. JJ. Do that she came back after two months and it just like jet. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Just go right by dad's house and see ya. All right. Um, the word virginity is used perpetually after that also. It doesn't say they limited her death. They limited her virginity. She would have her virginity, not she was going to get killed. Mm-hmm. So I know virginity was a big, I mean, having children was a huge big deal in that culture, but. The text continually talks about virginity. Okay. So I'm on this side of what we're talking about with the perpetual virginity. What do you do with that um, burnt offering statement and that he did what he had vowed? Anybody got a way to get us out of that? So one is, and these are, you know, that's why these are hard. You, you go, well, maybe. Um, it says, uh, well, let, let me read it. Okay, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Apparently that and will, can is sometimes translated or. Uh, it shall be the Lord's, or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Um, other ones are, um, oh, like in the New Testament where we're offering ourselves as a living sacrifice, um, or some places in Old Testament where they redeem something that had been given uh, as a sacrifice. You could pay a certain amount of money and get it back. So one of those things, I do think it just seems to put so much focus on the virginity, perpetual, perpetual. it just seems kind of out of place otherwise. Um, and even the sense that even if Jephthah was that 
off, you would have thought, and again, these are not 100% arguments, but that the people would have argued, like you think when Saul said uh, no one, he made a vow before the Lord that no one is to eat until we fully killed the enemy, and Jonathan didn't know it, and he sticks the tip of his spear in honey and eats it, and his face is brightened, and, he's, and Jonathan has just done this great victory, and Saul says, yeah, but he broke the... He broke that agreement, and we're going to put him to death. And the people said, we're not putting him to death. Uh, and so, you know, knowing that, that keeping that vow, from, you know, first of all, Jonathan didn't even know it was, uh, had been said, uh, but the other was the keeping of that would have been far worse than breaking the vow and not killing him. So you would have thought some of that would have gone on. So I'm going to leave it at that. You can go wrestle with it some more if you want. I, I believe that she was not killed, but she was put in perpetual uh, service to the Lord. And um, so never married, never had children. Yeah, yeah. Constructing a straw man argument. Do you have to? <laughs> no, go ahead. Well, I mean, the text clearly says he did what he vowed to do. Yep. Which was a heinous, stupid act, but mm-hmm. so was his vow. Yep. So, and also the custom of lamenting afterwards. Mm-hmm. Would that have a kind of custom if it was just perpetual virginity? Yeah. No, I mean, I think those are, those are good counter arguments. That's yeah. why. It's hard for anybody to totally land. Sensitivities today, we're trying to impose what we think shouldn't have happened until what mm-hmm. the text clearly says. Yeah, I, I guess I can't go that far. I don't think it's that clear. I think the fact that it's, I mean, everything that's already been said, that the fact that it puts so much focus on her virginity seems a little odd to me. I mean, just from the text. What's that? I think it's just because he didn't have grandkids. Yeah. And well, yeah. Virginity in the past tense. So mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Again, I'm 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 probably not going to try to argue very much with you. I think sort it through, and and I. This is one of those ones where you could just about split people in half where they end up, and and we have to watch that that our culture, but. I, I don't think that's where I'm coming from so much. I mean, I, you can't total, ever totally say that, but because I certainly think what happened at the end of Judges where the concubine was cut into 12 pieces and all that, I mean, there's no question there. To me, clearly that's what happened. Clearly it was horrible. It's nothing anybody from any culture would probably say was a good thing. This one seems, I just think there are legitimate counterarguments to it. Anyway, all right, but I do want to at least get, eh, well, it looks like we'll do this next week, but lessons learned from it, because I think either way, whether it was the most horrific and killed his daughter, maybe, uh, or whether he had said, you'll never marry, you'll never have children, um, the idea of how we look at vows, whether they're rash, whether they're good, uh, and how we deal with them particularly. I mean, in some ways, it'd be particularly if, indeed, he killed her. Was that the right thing to do for him to you know, swear to his own hurt and follow through? Um, so I still want to get the, the takeaways, but we'll do that next week. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we do, uh, again, thank you for your word. We thank you for so much uh, that is clear, so many things that we uh, are taught and instructed, the things that we learn about you, uh, your compassion for us, uh, things that we learn about ourselves and some of the ways that we uh, falter. Father, we thank you for them, and we thank you even for the harder things that that are sometimes a wrestle, sometimes harder to 
land uh, completely solidly on. Uh, but again, Lord, we pray that you would help us to apply the things that we can see uh, and to be quick to obey and to obey from a whole heart. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.